We read the word of the Lord this evening, congregation, as we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, or I'm sorry, chapter 12, and we'll read verses 1 through 13. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 13, and we'll give our attention, especially this evening, to the first three verses. The first three, three verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, let us listen to this word the Lord speaks to us. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one Spirit. Notice again the first opening verses of this section of Paul's letter. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. May the Lord bless this reading and our hearing of his word this evening. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our passage and text this evening at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is part of a larger section of Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth that addresses a problem in the church of Corinth. And the problem was that there were some among them who thought of themselves as super spiritual. And they looked down their noses at others within the congregation of whom they thought they are far less gifted in the spectacular gifts of the Holy Spirit. They don't exhibit the kind of magnificent and extraordinary giftedness that is true of us. Now, it's very interesting to me that there would be a problem in the church in Corinth regarding the presence of the Spirit and the nature and character of the Spirit's work. 
because it's still true today. We live in a century or after a century in which there has been a great phenomenon, perhaps the greatest of all, that has captivated a very large portion of that which confesses itself to be the Christian church. Whether the name is Pentecostal or Neo-Pentecostal or Charismatic, what's striking is that one of the features of this development is a claim that is often made about what marks out and distinguishes a truly spirit-indwelled person from one who is rather, shall we say, to use a colloquial expression, a kind of -of run-of-the-mill, average sort of Joe Christian. And usually it's the very same thing that was typical in part of these super-spiritual Corinthians And that was their exaltation of the extraordinary gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of speaking in tongues. Look at us. See this dramatic manifestation that the Spirit of the Lord is in this place. Now here's a question for you, congregation. Is yours a Spirit-filled congregation? is the Faith United Reformed Church in Beecher, Illinois. I have to catch myself, I just about said Indiana. No, Illinois. Are you as members of this Spirit-indwelt body of Christ by virtue of the pouring forth of the Spirit that occurred at Pentecost, a gifted-in-the-Spirit community? And how would you know? What's the trademark? What's the telltale indication that the Lord is among us and he's working in and through us by his spirit and word? That's a question that you cannot escape. And it's a question that has become very prominent, not only in the days of Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthians, but also in our day. And the interesting thing is about this extended sermon, I'm not going to answer the question this evening about tongue speaking. If you invite me back, perhaps I'll go further into the passage. But he starts out by observing something in the first three verses. They sort of form a kind of summary statement as a kind of rule or norm for how we are to understand the presence and working of the Holy Spirit. He lays down a marker, a telltale marker, the most significant, the most outstanding characteristic of a spirit-indwelt church, of a spirit-indwelt member of the church what could be called the evidence that the Spirit is in this place. Now, before we go into it further, I wanted to use the language of a telltale mark that the Spirit of the Lord is this in this place. I have often used the analogy or the illustration that one of the obvious telltale marks that some of my grandchildren have been in the Venema home while I was at the office are the following. 
fingerprints, much to my dismay, on the glass. I like to keep the glass clean. People at the seminary will tell you that's one of his characteristics. He likes everything tidy and neat. That's why I'm a systematic theologian. But it's not only fingerprints on the glass, it's toys strewn about the basement. Things are in a bit of a disarray. I don't have to ask my wife, Nancy, did the grandchildren pay you a visit today? The marks, the evidence speaks for itself. Now that's what Paul is doing here at the outset of this mini-sermon in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. He's giving us, this is what you need to look for to see whether the Spirit is in this place. Now let me spend, first of all, some time because the language that he uses in these first three verses is quite striking. And it is descriptive of the problem that existed in the Corinthian church. He writes this way in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, it's actually a little bit of a mistranslation. The language of gifts is used throughout these chapters, but he uses a very unusual word here that could probably better be rendered literally the things or the matters that pertain to the Spirit. I hear and I understand. Notice his language. I do not want you to be uninformed. Two times prior to this, in this first letter to the Corinthians, he's used that language. I do not want you to be uninformed. Why would he use that language? Because they were uninformed. They were mistaken. They had a wrong view of the things that pertain to the Holy Spirit. And that's why this church was divided. They said things like, well, this Apostle Paul, he's very unimpressive. He just comes and he has a poor voice. He's little in stature. His speech is with much fear and trembling. Whereas we super apostles, we've watched the orators in the Greek marketplace of our city. And we have eloquence. When we speak, people listen. Our speech is, well, it's not only human. It's sometimes like the language of the angels. It's so out of the ordinary, it's so spectacular and unusual. It's one of the reasons why in verse 13 that I read this evening, he is wanting to impress upon the Corinthians that every member of that church, without exception, each and every one had been by or in the Spirit baptized into the body of Christ. And all of them, without exception, had been given to drink of the one spirit. Because what was happening in the Corinthian church is they were taking the measure of the spirit's presence in their midst by the unusual, the out of the ordinary, the spectacular. For example, speaking in an unknown tongue as one is caught up in the Spirit. Notice his language in verses 2 and 3. It's very striking. You know that when you were pagans, he reminds them of their pagan past. 
apparently they had carried over out of their earlier paganism into their Christian experience ideas concerning spiritual things or the nature of the spirits working among them that they brought with them from paganism. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. You could say it colloquially like this. You were caught up in spiritual ecstasies. You were, as it were, lifted out of yourself and by the Spirit given extraordinary abilities to to speak. To speak in language unknown to those who hear you. In fact, later on in chapter 14, he's going to say one word in a known language or tongue is better than 10,000 in an unknown tongue. A simple word of edification based upon what God has revealed in his word is worth more than all your ecstatic utterances not often recognize that within paganism, for example, the cult of Dionysius that prevailed in the city of Corinth, speaking in angelic or heavenly tongues was a common practice. In fact, Paul alludes to that later in chapter 13, the following chapter, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, if, whether I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but have not love. It was a kind of frenzy, of out-of-body, even out-of-mind kind of experience. The closest analog I can think of, of in our present day, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of something called the Toronto Blessing. Are you paying attention that what goes on in our time and culture, even within the church, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, for more than a decade, people have gathered together in large numbers, throwing themselves on the ground. Can you imagine barking like dogs, which is thought to be a registry of the Spirit having taken hold of them? Or, alternatively... I do not make this up. You can do the Google search. It's a rather extraordinary illustration of the point, a little on the fringe perhaps, but nonetheless described and confessed to be a manifestation of the presence of the Spirit of Christ in their midst. Holy laughter. The largest denomination of Pentecostalism in the world has for over 100 years taught and teaches that you know the Spirit of God in superabundance is present when you speak in an unknown tongue, unknown to you and unknown to others. So when Paul says you know that when you were pagans you were led astray to idols that are, notice, mute. They can't, they have mouths, but they cannot speak. They speak nary a word. They're deaf, dare I say, dumb, and ignorant. 
however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus, this is very striking, is accursed. Commentators are all over the map on the question, could it be that in one of their reveries, in one of their displays of ecstatic speech and conduct in the Corinthian church, in their mindless ecstasy, someone had blurted out, may Jesus be cursed. Now what's the point of all this? The point of all this is Paul is directing the Corinthians to look elsewhere for a telltale characteristic trademark of the Spirit at work among them. And so I call to your attention the language that he uses. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And now hear this. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now let's reflect upon that for a moment. I've been describing the occasion for the Apostle Paul beginning his sermon about spiritual things, what pertains to the presence and working of the Spirit of Christ in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, with what was taking place in the Corinthian church among some who thought of themselves as at an advanced level, at a higher level of the Spirit's presence and giftedness. And Paul moves, you might say, from the sublime, or perhaps you could call it the ridiculous, to the plain and the simple. If you want to know whether the Spirit is in this place, you want to be asking the question, what do they say, what do they confess, what do they believe regarding the Lord Jesus Christ? I think it's J.I. Packer who wants to use the analogy of the Holy Spirit in relationship to Christ as being like a spotlight. He does not call attention to himself. He comes to minister to us, as our Lord promised in the Gospel of John, to teach us as the spirit of truth the things we need to know concerning the gospel word regarding Jesus Christ who, and his person and his work. He is our instructor. He's the one who gives us hearts that are become receptive to the word, eyes that have been opened to the beauty and the glory of God as it shines in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way, says Packer, as a spotlight draws your attention to someone who is in the center of the stage and the focus of your attention. This is how you know, says the Apostle Paul, that the Spirit is among you. If it's the Spirit of Christ, then the word and confession that you make concerning Christ will be rooted in the testimony 
of the word of God. You will find a people who are saying and confessing in the spirit soberly and intelligently Jesus is Lord. Now let's consider that for a moment, brothers and sisters. What is it to confess that Jesus is Lord? Paul says in Romans chapter 10, he who believes in his heart that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, having been given over for our sins, raised for our justification, and confesses with his mouth, Jesus is Lord, such a person will be saved. But how then can they believe and confess Jesus is Lord unless someone speak the word concerning him to them? How can they call upon whom one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear of him without someone coming, having been sent, to give them that word concerning the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, it's one of the simplest, most obvious summary statements of the profession of faith of any Christian. And it has at least three senses means, among other things, as Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 2, that the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was equal with God, did not regard his being equal with God as a thing to be held on to for his own advantage, but humbled himself, took the form of a servant, became obedient, yes, obedient even unto death, the death of a cross. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and tongue confess what? That he is Lord. He is the Holy Son of God. God of God, light of light, who for us and for our salvation entered into our circumstance, took the form of a servant in order in our flesh to make atonement for our sins. So at the very least, to confess Jesus speaking in the Spirit, on the basis of the word's testimony to him, is to confess that he is whom the scriptures reveal him to be, in the fullness of his person as the incarnate Son of God, now exalted to father's, the Father's right hand. But that's not all. In the Heidelberg Catechism, when the question is asked, what is it to confess that Jesus is Lord? It's to acknowledge that the purchase price of your and my redemption was nothing less than the unimaginable shedding of his own blood. He bought you at a very high price, which is why you're precious to him. 
and he claims you as his blood-bought bride, whom he cherishes, whom he owns, whom he has purchased, redeemed, so that when you confess Jesus Christ to be Lord, you say, here I am, Lord, with all that I am and all that I have and all that I will ever be, I'm yours. Isn't that what we say in the very first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism? What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm what? Not my own. But I belong to a faithful, my faithful Savior, who has fully satisfied for all my sins. You see, when you find a man or a woman, young or old, rich or poor, any member of the body of Christ, the church. This is the foremost, the fundamental question. Do you find someone who, having been taken hold of by the Spirit and Word of Jesus Christ, acknowledges understandingly intelligently, having been informed and instructed in the teaching of the Word of God, authored and inscripturated by the Spirit himself. Jesus is Lord. But you know that language also has a third dimension. It's not only to confess that he's the true God, the Son of God, the beloved Son, whom the Father did not spare, who purchased me at a very high price. By the way, we don't often enough recognize what that means in terms of being his prized possession. If you spent every penny that you've accumulated in the course of your life to obtain something that you coveted. No one's going to steal it out of your hands very quickly, are they? You're going to prize it. You're going to cherish it. You're going to keep it. And no one will rip it out of your grasp, nor you from the one who has hold of you. But it's also the idea of lordship is that of not only ownership, but rule over. It means I'm his servant. Just as he came to serve and not to be served, so having purchased my redemption, I belong to him body and soul, I'm at his disposal. And one of the things the Apostle Paul is going to argue at great length in these three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, and he says it all right up front in the speaking in the spirit language of confessing, knowing what you're saying, Jesus is Lord, that you know the spirit is in this place. When those who confess Jesus and Lord are gifted by the Spirit so as to build one, other, one another up, to edify every member of the body, not to puff themselves up, not to make themselves appear to be 
super spiritual, out of the ordinary sorts of Christians. But those who seek to serve one another, even as Christ came to serve and not to be served. The point I'm making, and the Apostle Paul is making to these Corinthians, particularly the party among them who had this mistaken view of their super spirituality. This is the telltale mark, the compelling evidence that the Spirit of the Lord is in this place. By the Word, instructed by the working of the Spirit, you find a people who, when they make confession, as you did tonight, you recited the Apostles' Creed, which includes, among its other articles, the confession concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. By the Spirit, that's my testimony. I belong to Christ, the Son of God, become man in order to purchase my redemption, and who by his Spirit places me in service not only to him, to whom I belong, body and soul, but to those who are his. A spirit not of self-exaltation, but a spirit of selfless service to those who, like me, are members of his precious bride, the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Church in our day needs to know, to believe, and to practice, demonstrating thereby that the Spirit whom Christ has given is truly in this place. May God grant it for his glory and for our good. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we live in a day and an age where many have confusing and confused views of the power and presence and how that is evident in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us ears to hear the word of the apostle, that this is the principal mark and testimony, that the spirit of the Lord is in this place. Jesus Christ is known and confessed to be our Lord, to whom we belong, body and soul, and in whose name we serve one another by the Spirit. May it be true of us individually, but also as a body. And may it be an eloquent testimony to others that would draw them into our circle and our fellowship, that they too may confess with us that there is but one who is Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ. Here as we ask in Jesus' name.